All right, everyone. Well, good evening. According to my clock, it's 6 o'clock, and I, I do always like to start on time to be respectful of everybody's time. I uh, want to welcome you here to our program tonight. My name is Sandra Gwynn, and I'm the president of Great Falls Cascade County Crime Stoppers. And on behalf of our board, I want to thank you all very much for coming and for our panel as well. Our program tonight is called Community Safety, Good for Our Community, Good for Our Youth. I'm going to just take a couple of minutes and talk to you a little bit about Crime Stoppers. We've been in the community now for about 40 years. We're a nonprofit 501c3, and our program itself is coordinated through the Sheriff's Office, but our board is independent. And right now we have 13 community volunteer members who sit on our board. And for most of us, myself included, we're also involved in our community and in other capacities as well. Most of you probably know us as the entity that pays out cash rewards for tips that lead to an arrest. And we still do that. But here a few years ago, our board decided to add community education to our mission. Most of us in our capacity, uh, in, out and about in our community, realized that there's a lot of ignorance out there about crime and what's going on in our community regarding crime, the criminal justice system. And so here tonight, we're hosting this program as a way to educate you. We're not here to advocate, but to educate. Regardless of how you feel about the levy, even if, whether or not you're even planning to vote for it, as we all well know, it's gonna be on the November 7th ballot, at least leave here educated. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to our moderator, Shane Etzweiler. Shane is the President CEO of the Chamber of Commerce, and he's also the Vice President of Crime Stoppers. All right. Thank you, Sandra. Appreciate that. Um, again, with the Great Falls Area Chamber of Commerce, I'm not trying to one-up Cascade County Crime Stoppers, but we've been around for 135 years. So about a century longer than Crime Stoppers, but it's been a great partnership and relationship with Crime Stoppers, and I'm proud to serve on the Crime Stoppers board as well, too. So just want to reiterate what Sandra has said. Uh, the purpose of our meeting tonight is really to inform and educate, educate our community on um, what the public safety is going to be about, and so that's why we have a great panel of speakers up here as well. But we know that public safety and criminal activity impacts our youth. And again, that's why the topic of our forum tonight is good for our community and good for our youth. And uh, I'm not going to steal anybody's thunder right now, but there is a poster in the back on the table. And it's children see, children do, they model after you. And so some of our guests at the end of the, the tables here will actually talk about and share with you uh, some of the impact they see um, on our youth in our community. And so we're looking forward to that as well. So. Um, each panel speaker will have 10 minutes to kind of share with you some topics. And uh, we have uh, Dean right here at the front. He will kind of monitor and time you, put you on a stopwatch, and he'll present a cue card when there's a three minute and then a one minute. And so when you get to that point, start thinking about wrapping up your comments. So um, again, thanks for joining us tonight. And uh, I'll turn it over right now to our city manager, Greg Doyen and uh, he'll kind of kick off our presentation tonight. Thanks, Shane. Good evening, everybody. Thanks so much for having us. I do apologize for being late and embarrassing all of you and two of my bosses in the audience. I haven't used this excuse yet, but I was having a little post-operative issue, and that's resolved, so here I am. 
but I do want to recognize that we have Mayor Pro Tem Susan Wolf in the audience and also Commissioner Joe McKenney. And I'll let the rest of the folks, the team up here, introduce themselves to you. And you're going to hear that they're, uh, in terms of operations, they're far better equipped to talk about some of the uh, challenges with public safety and then some of the aspects of the levy that I'm sure you're interested in. What I'd like to do uh, initially is just kind of set the table and uh, perhaps address some questions that you may have in your mind already about the public safety levy uh, and the bond. At the last town hall meeting that the city held, I started off with a comment that this had been 15 years in the making. It was really kind of a reference to my tenure here. But the truth is it's really been longer than that. It's probably been about 50 years in the making uh, since we've made an investment in some infrastructure for the city of Great Falls. Uh, for public safety. There's been a cumulative impact. And so I think when folks are taking a look at the uh, levy request and the bond request, there's a little bit of a sticker shock there. And while there's a lot of history as to why maybe it was that occurred in that cumulative fashion, uh, it's not for uh, the city not attempting to address its public safety needs through other things. And I'm going to share a little bit of that with you tonight to help you be better informed. Public safety has been the uh, primary topic of every budget that I've done for the city of Great Falls. It's also been one of the priorities for the city commissions that I've served with since I've been here uh, over those 15 years. It's always been a goal and to make it better, to make sure that the community was safe, that those needs were getting addressed. As uh, you may follow local politics or state or, or federal politics, you know it's not often the what. I think everybody would agree that public safety is a priority in any community because of its impact on so many aspects of it, but it's often uh, the how. How do we address that in a way that is going to be cost effective and be meaningful and deliver results that people uh, expect? So I just want to take you on a little uh, journey here. Um, back in 2008, when I started in March, there were a couple things going on. One was that we were starting to see the recession that occurred. I, you probably all remember what that was like. Uh, and also during that time frame, the city was in the process of dealing with electric city power. The city commission did put on the ballot in 2009 a request uh, for public safety for fire and police. That levy did fail. And then in the years between 2010 and 2014, we truly were kind of embroiled in this extrication from electric city power, which did have a significant financial impact uh, to the community. I'm not going to keep blaming everything on electric city power. It's kind of a, a nice thing to kick when you're in conversations, because there were other factors, but definitely that was one of them. So in light of that recovery post our extraction from ECP, there were certain things that we tried to do with the general fund, which supports fire, police, courts, and the city attorney's office, to build capacity in that fund to better support the public safety continuum. So there are things that you may have wondered about over the years if you've been watching local government. Why did the city do that? What's this issue over here? Why are they not funding this? This might answer a few of those questions. We ended up cutting outside support to Great Falls Development Authority because we needed that cash for city operations, including public safety. We ended up making recommendations during the budget processes uh, to cut fireworks, the city band, the city ex the Christmas tree. Um, sorry, I was kind of behind those things, but 
quite frankly, there were some priorities. It's not that I don't like Christmas. It's just that we needed to be efficient and effective with the dollars that we were receiving. We ended up level funding or capping a lot of the general support dollars that went uh, from general taxation, property taxes, which you pay, to the library, to park and rec. And in park and rec, there were a couple of divisions that were hit in particular. Natural resources, pools, the recreation center, multi-sports, operations, civic center events, and also one outlier, uh, city engineering. So if you've seen any dynamics in those programs or requests for funding to support those, does that make it a little clearer? Because they were struggling because we ended up capping the money that was coming from general taxation into supporting those efforts. We also tried to, what I call and characterize it as dribbling in resources when we could. So there were some years that we had additional funding that was not expended. And with that, we tried to make some strategic expenditures for a capital improvement for resources, for public safety purchases. Uh, and also, we tried to staff when we could additional folks into supporting roles using grants. We even changed shifts. There was two shift change, uh, changes that occurred. Uh, one at the fire department, it was more of a, a kind of a work-life balance issue, but I think it addressed some of the coverage issues. But most recently, uh, circa 2019, Chief Bowen briefed the city commission on a schedule shift for the police department. And that was a very critical meeting to where we are tonight because at that meeting he said, I have done everything that I can do with the resources I have to provide coverage to this community without adding more staff. It was uh, an impactful presentation for those that saw it or heard about it and we've been struggling with that ever since. It was uh, after the commission agreed to do the public safety, um, the crime task force, where there was, again, a reinvigorated spotlight on the whole issue of crime in Great Falls. And during that discussion, and up to the commission um, deciding what their options were, they recognized that public safety wasn't just, that law enforcement was just not one piece of it. Because if you add more officers, and theoretically they write more tickets, there's going to be more prosecution activities, and there's going to be more courtroom activities. And so they took more of a holistic approach and looked at the entire public safety spectrum and said, we're going to address all of this because we can't wait any longer. So they explored some options. We kind of put it out in a good, better, best chart, as you saw. Uh, what ended up on the operations levy in the bond was uh, perhaps a mixture of good and better. It definitely wasn't the best. I will tell you uh, in terms of um, a mechanical look at what's being presented to the voters, this is likely where we should have been about 10 years ago in terms of proper staffing for the community based on the demands that we see today. So there's never ever a good time to ask for more property taxes and we certainly understand that this ask is a big one. Sometimes um, the timing of those asks are not awesome. Sometimes there's economic factors that occur, and sometimes there's other entities that are also seeking additional uh, dollars. So um, I just want to make sure that you understand that we know that this is a, a big ask of the taxpayer. And I would just say that I would look at both sides of the equation after you listen to the rest of the folks tonight on the panel. If we do it, what's the impact? If we don't do it, potentially, what is the impact? 
So I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to uh, Chief Newton to do his presentation, and I can answer some specific questions a little later on as we move through the program. But thank you for your attention, and again, thank you for being here tonight. Thank you, Greg. And we will do a Q&A at the end of the presentation, so that way if audience members have questions, we'll allow you to ask them at that time. So, Chief Newton, thank right. you. Thank you, Shane. Again, Jeff Newton, Chief of Police, thank you for uh, the opportunity to speak tonight. And again, as we, we go on to this, um, there's three things I'd like uh, everybody to keep in mind. One, uh, the support of this, we're here to advocate, or educate, not advocate. Educate, not advocate, and again, it is your choice. Um, bottom line, win, lose, or draw, it's your choice. Second thing I'd like everybody to keep in mind is public safety just doesn't involve law enforcement. Public safety in our community is law enforcement, Great Falls Fire Rescue, uh, city attorney's office, and the judge's office. So the, there's actually four components to, to that because we all uh, have to work together for public safety. Um, when we started going through this process, if we remember back to, and, and Greg mentioned the Crime Task Force, 17 uh, recommendations that went to the City Commission from the Crime Task Force pertain to the Police Department alone. And there were multiple pages of recommendations that involved all facets of public safety. Uh, another thing to keep in mind as we go through this, uh, the Great Falls Police Department has a priority matrix, and our prior priority matrix externally is crime, traffic, and quality of life. So crime, traffic, and quality of life. Um, and as we go through that, keep that in mind, but also keep in mind there, there are three main functions of how to staff police departments. One is a, a national trend of a number of officers per thousand population. The average throughout the United States is 1.8 to 2.6. Uh, for Great Falls, that would be anywhere from 116 officers to 154 at the top, and we're currently sitting at 92 sworn on paper, but I'm currently down 10 right now. Uh, the second method is, and by the way, the number of, of officers per thousand, that's based on demographics, and that's a rough estimate, and that's probably the least desirable because if you're in New York City, obviously, with a population density, you're going to need more officers than you are in a very rural community in the state of Montana. The second method is budget, budgetary, and that's traditionally how Great Falls has, has funded staffing, is what does a budget allow for personnel, because personnel are the most expensive costs in our budget. Uh, and the third method is data-driven. Um, and data-driven, when we respond to calls for service, because we're averaging currently anywhere from 140 to 150 calls for service per day. Um, that's what our officers, our patrol officers are, are responding to. So when you look at calls for service, you just can't look at the call that comes in and the, and the response of the officer. There are other things that go into it. There's paperwork, there's evidence collection, there's evidence submission, there's testifying in court. There's all those other things that involve um, our officers' time. Last year, we did a three-month study. We called it the Toggle Report, where we had two squads in our patrol, patrol units document for three months, what did you do every day? At the end of those three months, it turned out 90% of their time was dedicated, meaning out of a 10-hour and 40-minute shift, uh, about, just, about an hour, a little over an hour, was undedicated time for proactive enforcement. And that hour wasn't continuous might be five minutes here, might be 10 minutes there, it might be 20 minutes there. So when you're talking crime, traffic, and quality of life, particularly with, with the uh, traffic issue, that's proactive enforcement that our officers have minimal to no time to do currently. When we look at, when we look at the recommendations, and as far as what I recommended to uh, Greg and to the city commission, the ask that I'm looking for, it's all operational. Um, historically, we have, we have cut DARE, we've cut LRE, we've cut our special projects unit. Um, 
our, our debt directed in enforcement team and the patrol, we're starting a KDAX, we're having a backfill patrol. Um, we tightened our belt and my predecessors tightened their belt. So all of our officers, we've, we've essentially stopped doing all these peripheral duties and units and have put those all into patrol and investigations. It's operational. Because currently the Great Falls Police Department is a reactionary police department, is what we are. Uh, we're responding calls for service. Um, I'm asking for up to 24 officers. The bulk of those are in patrol, uh, 12 patrol officers, supervisors, five additional investigators to include two school resource officers, because is Sergeant Cunningham, who's responsible for our special victims unit and our, our school resource officers, our two school resource officers, or four school resource officers, one in each high school, one in each middle school, are essentially managing um, over 11,000 students and staff. So let's put that in perspective. Great Falls High, uh, sergeants running 1,200 students-ish, roughly, yeah. So keep in mind, that is a bigger population with one SRO than we have in some small communities in the state of Montana. So if you can put that in perspective. And plus, these are, are young individuals who we all know dealing with kids aren't fully developed and they make poor choices at times, right? I think we'd all pretty much agree on that. Uh, to addition, a, a crisis intervention trained officer. Now, if you add sworn staff, you have to add some staff on the backside to support that. Some civilian staff to include two dispatchers, another dispatch console, a crime analyst, which we talked about as far as data, uh, to include a records bureau technician, because when you have more officers, more paperwork comes, you need support staff to support that, and then an, an additional evidence technician. So as you see, when you add on this end, that impacts not only the municipal court, but also uh, uh, the judge's office. But I, I use the analogy, it's kind of like putting two pounds of bologna in one pound bag, right? Something has to give. So if you add on this end, you have to add on the back end to support that. And then also some basic equipment training for officers. Currently it takes about, from start to finish, it's about $15,000 to bring a new officer on, equip that officer through training, and get them out on the street. It's an expensive, time-consuming proposition. Um, I w I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about, everybody loves stats, right? Everybody, everybody loves statistics. So we talked about the average calls for service per day. Um, and right now that's on a 24-hour time period. We're running average from anywhere from 13 to 14 officers in a 24-hour time period. The way our patrol bureau is set up is basically two teams with three squads on each team. Two lieutenants, three squads overseen by sergeants. Each squad, if it were fully staffed, would be seven. Right now we're averaging four to five per squad. So on the front end, on the on beginning of day shift, four officers at the back end of night shift, it's four officers per squad. What we've done with the 10-hour, 40-hour shifts is because of staffing, we've adjusted that to put them on the peak times, essentially 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. That's where the bulk of our personnel are because that's what the data indicates, or that's where the majority of our calls occur. So we've tried to maximize our staff. In addition, we can't forget about our 911 center because 9-1 Center is actually under the City of Great Falls. It's my responsibility. We've actually adjusted their shifts, too, to maximize staffing, because I'm short in dispatch as well. Um, so we've done everything we can for that. Um, during 2022, uh, because of the short staffing, we had had a combined total of 13,571 hours of overtime work uh, to backfill the shortage. And if you equate that to 2,080 hours per year, that's six and a half officers. I was still down 10, so as, as much overtime as our officers worked, include officers and detectives, we were still short and still didn't equate to the staffing shortage. 
Real quick, I know I'm about out of time. Um, here's where we're at organizationally. We're reactive and we're having to prioritize our calls, not only calls for service um, in the street, but also in our investigations bureau, which means when you have the, the worst crimes that come in, our investigators are having to look at and investigate the worst of the worst. And sometimes those property crimes, when we talk quality of life issues, those have to get pushed out. Same thing, which, which just really upsets me, but the fact that matter is um, Sergeant Cunningham oversees our uh, special victims unit which deals with sex crimes. Our SVU detectives are being forced to prioritize those crimes as well. They're all heinous. They're all, they're all the worst of the worst, particularly when you're dealing with, with children. They're being forced to look at the worst of the worst, focus on those, and get to the other ones when they can. It, it, it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but that is the reality of where we're at and our capacity to provide service to the community. Um, how much time do I have? About a minute and a half, okay. A couple of, that, a couple of real scenarios that I've encountered. I've got a friend um, that, that talked to me one day and said, Jeff, you know, I waited two hours. I got in a non-injury crash in residential area and I waited two hours for one of your officers to show up and I said, his name's Jeff, too, and I said, yeah, you, pro you probably did because we have to prioritize calls. So if it's a non-injury crash on a residential area, we will, when we clear an officer, we will handle that. Currently our supervisors are having to screen calls to deal with um, the violent crimes, uh, the family disturbances, the stabbings. Unfortunately this year, as we know, we've had homicides, we've had some shootings in town. Those are all hands on deck and it requires our officers to focus on those, on those crimes. So when I talk quality of life issues, those also get prioritized and get bumped down and we get to those when we can. So it, it, it doesn't paint a very pretty picture, but that's reality. No one's ever accused me of not being direct and not being honest, but capacity-wise, that's where uh, your Great Falls Police Department is right now. And our officers are doing a great job of doing the best they can. So I'll be available and happy to answer questions uh, at the conclusion. Thank you. And my role is going to maybe to call out some facts. So real quick, again, just for clarification, you said the kind of the national average officers per population, 1.8 to 2.6, which for Great Falls would mean anywhere from 116 to 150 officers for a community of our size. How many did you say we currently have? Uh, full staffing, full-time employees is 92 uh, on paper, and I'm currently downtown. So, okay. The other stat I want to call out, because I'm a numbers guy and I kind of like drilling down, but 140 to 150 calls a day. That's six an hour. That's one every 10 minutes. So think about that. And if these officers are working, I'm just gonna say a 10 hour shift, one hour to debrief, get ready, eight hours, they're gonna handle anywhere from 48 to 50 calls in that eight hour shift. And again, when we talked about needing resources, they're definitely seem to be understaffed and we need more additional officers to help. Again, quality of life, criminal activity, and then also traffic citations as well. So. Okay, we'll open up to questions. Thank you, Chief. Uh, now, Chief Jeremy Jones. Thank you, Jeremy Jones. Um, so I've been the Chief since Greg's appointed me in 2020. Uh, you know, Chief Newton kind of hit it on the head. You know, some might be thinking, why is the fire department up here? As You know, this is really crime stopper as well. A couple quick things come to the thought of that is we work alongside the Great Falls Police Department every day. Um, whether it be the bad calls, the overdoses, 
but where we really are impacted is what we've had to do together to create task force to address some of the issues in our community, such as arson, um, such as active shooter, and more importantly, when the HRU unit is dispatched to those higher, very high stress situations, we are their medical team to support them with paramedics and the transport capabilities to be able to make sure that the people doing the hard work are safe. Um, but how did we get here? So Greg kind of mentioned that through the Crime Task Force, the holistic approach of uh, public safety was mentioned. Well, kind of during while that was going on, our city was getting audited by the Insurance Services Office. And what that audit came to after a nine-month process was basically we do not have adequate coverage for the geographical square miles within our community. So what's that mean? Well, the Insurance Services Office is really the home agency that assists and gives our community a rating, which is then affected by whoever home insurance carrier that you provide, whether it be Farm Bureau, State Farm, you name it. They, get, they set their policies in your homeowner's insurance premiums based off our ISO score. So what did that mean in the past year and a half for us? We went from a two to a three. ISO states that every 1.5 mile donut is a covered protected area around the fire station. As was mentioned earlier, 1969 was the last time this community built fire stations. We've been operating under the same fire station blueprint since that time 53 years later. Well, the community population may have only risen a little bit, but our geographical spread has almost doubled. And, and that's where we're coming up short, is our footprint as a community has expanded the capabilities of what we can reach in how we measure ourselves as having an effective response force. And so what is an effective response force? Uh, the fire department responding and showing up eventually is not a win. That is not an effective response force. 1.5 miles equates to our other industry standard, which is a four minute travel time. They're almost identical and can be overlapped on a map. Uh, if we're not there in four minutes, your brain doesn't get oxygen. You, your house goes from a kitchen fire to a fully involved fire. Uh, if you're bleeding out, it is the difference from your heart pumping all your blood out onto the floor versus intervention being done. That's what it equates to. Um, your fire department in this community is an all-hazards fire department. Not only do we fight fire, we provide fire-based EMS protection, first response services for all areas protected by us. We provide hazmat and technical rescue. So the staffing component, as, as Greg said, being able to address staffing. NFPA also says, that for a single family 2,000 square foot house fire, we should throw 17 firefighters at that. Because everyone's assigned a job. They have tasks, they know what they're supposed to do when, when it's done perfectly. Any given day, the best we can do is 13. 13 people. And you need to take into account, that's if everyone's in their station, and that's if no other emergency calls are functioning within our community. We can throw 13. 50% of the time, we have two or more resources or fire trucks, okay, a resource is a fire truck, tied up on other emergency events that's facing our community. So we don't have enough resources. And then when we do, up to 
123 fires last year in our community. 123 times I have nothing left for what comes next. There's nothing in reserve. Your fire department has been uh, run to a point where we throw everything at the big events. We have nothing in reserve to throw back to protect our community. And we have to rely on calling our personnel back off duty, which takes time. Again, I want to emphasize four minute travel time. It's the only indicator that we can't affect change in is outside our parameters. What have we done as a department? Well, since 2016, we brought in over $2.9 million in grants. We are very effective and we are good at grant writing. And it has been to just maintain our level of service with the equipment needed to perform our functions. $2.9 million. Uh, we have 17 mutual aid agreements. A mutual aid agreement is basically, we'll come help you, you come help us. There was the Montana Air National Guard Fire Department, there was Mount Stem Air Force Fire Department, and there was our 17 rural volunteer fire departments. Again, that is not a guarantee that when we ask for help, they'll be available to come. They have their own jurisdictions to protect. Uh, that goes back to the four minute time again. If there's a delay, we're not being effective in the time needed to have an impact for a positive impact for our community. That's really the focus of where we're trying to go is to shore up, put 33 firefighters on the street, build one additional station through the bond, start to address the expansion of our community footprint and have enough firefighters to be able to handle the emergency incidents and to be able to have a reserve to make sure that we continue to protect this community when we do have a big event. The one thing uh, the actual manager said to me is if you do not begin to address this issue, you are going to regress every time we audit you. ISO audits every five years. We're only three years away from another regression. It will make an impact. It already is impacting business and commercial. It will make an impact to all of us when we have to go to insure our home. Thank you, Chief Jones. Um, so again, 123 fires last year, 10 a month, two and a half every week. I kind of want to give you some statistics at the 911 center, the emergency center up there as well too. Um, again, with the chamber, and we've done some business groups up there preparing for emergencies in our community as a business community. We take our leadership Great Falls team up there and our leadership high school team up there as well, too. And one of the stats that blew me away was how many calls our emergency center gets up there annually? 84,000. 7,000 a month. 1,750 a week. That's 240 to 250 calls every single day among all the departments, so fire and police and emergency services. Now we're talking a call, 10 calls an hour, one every six minutes. So again, when you think about that, how our resources are tapped, I mean, they are running all the time. So again, thank you for the information on that. So, and maybe you said it real quick, um, the last levy that was passed was 1969, 1970. That was to build a new fire station. How many fire personnel did you have on at that time, 1970? So all four current fire stations and the training center were built off the 1969 bond. 
at, at our peak, we had 103 firefighters in this community. Uh, call volume at that time was about 700 calls for service a year. Now, with we stopped running medical one calls or non-emergent medical calls uh, in 2021. With that reduction, we've been able to reduce our overall call volume to about 7,000 a year today. Today, we're at 60 firefighters. So we had almost a 50% reduction in staffing. I can't do the math to go from 700 to 7,000 increase in call volume and uh, calls for service in an emergent nature. I want to emphasize those 7,000 calls are emergent calls, not, not the non-emergent. So again, quick numbers, 102 back in 1970, now you're sitting at roughly 70, and our city's grown 40% geographically. So again, the challenges are real for uh, firefighters. I almost forgot my biggest stat. Um, 40, so we were talking about 1.5 mile donut. We were talking about a four minute travel time, right? Everyone's got that. What's that equate to? 41% of this community does not meet that standard. 41%. If you're outside those circles, you are not protected to the adequate level you need for an emergent effective response force from your fire department. All right, thanks Chief Jones. Now we'll turn over to City Attorney David Dennis. Thank you. Uh, I don't like to talk about statistics uh, normally, but there's really no other way to explain um, what it looks like in our office. I can't you know, obviously bring you into a, our office right now to show you what um, it looks like on a normal day, but I can certainly describe it by numbers and then maybe try to describe it um, uh, by uh, describing you know, what people do and, and how they do it and how they have to do it. We process 10,000, a little over 10,000 citations a year in our office, in the prosecutor's side. Uh, on the prosecution side of our office, uh, we have three prosecutors, three support staff. Um, they process the second most number of citations of any municipality in the state. The top is uh, Billings, which roughly has 17,000, but I, I'm gonna say five, up to 5,000 of those are ordinance violations. Um, and so that actually brings their, their citation number uh, closer to about 12 or 13,000. They do that with twice the number of prosecutors that we have in Great Falls and twice the number of support staff. But the numbers get even um, better or worse depending upon how you look at it. If you peel off the traffic citations and ordinance violations, and look just specifically at criminal prosecutions, uh, misdemeanor criminal prosecutions um, that are prosecuted by our office. We, we prosecute 4,000 misdemeanor criminal cases a year, just over 4,000, uh, about 50 more than the Billings uh, City Attorney's Office prosecutes, with, again, um, half the number of prosecutors. So in our office, roughly um, each prosecutor is handling um, about 1,400 criminal cases a year, in addition to all the traffic citations and, and other cases they're handling. So um, for each one of those 1,400 criminal cases, uh, you have initial appearances, you're building a file for that case, 
you're doing discovery in that case with uh, the defendant or the defendant's attorney. Uh, you may be entering into plea negotiations. You're filing motions or defending motions. Uh, you're having hearings on those motions. You're subpoenaing multiple witnesses for each one of those uh, 1,400 cases that you're handling as a prosecutor or the 4,000 that you're handling as an office. Um, you, you should be talking to witnesses also and you should be talking to victims. Um, I can tell you, I can't tell you what it looks like in the office, but I can kind of tell you what it looks like in the courtroom uh, on a bench trial day. So uh, yeah, a number of cases will get resolved through plea agreements and uh, some people plead guilty immediately, some will plead not guilty and then they'll eventually plead out. Uh, and then a, a, a number of cases, a significant number of cases will go to trial. And a lot of those are resolved through a bench trial, meaning you don't have a jury, they're just um, heard in, in front of the judge. And if I'm a prosecutor in my office, and it's bench trial day, I walk into the courtroom for the judge, I've got a list of trials in front of me, and that list might be 10, 12, 16 cases long. And I've got a stack of files like this. And as they're calling the cases, as a prosecutor, I'm picking up the file and I'm opening up the file and I'm reading through to see what the case is about, looking back to see if my witnesses have been subpoenaed and are here, uh, and if the, the, the victim, if the victim is a witness, has been subpoenaed and is here. Uh, and, and, and that's the way cases are tried. And you know, the witnesses get called up I'm thinking through my direct examination on the fly. Uh, if, if there's a defense counsel, I'm thinking of my cross-examination on the fly. That's how it works um, for our office when we're trying cases, and that, that's just not how it should work. For jury trials, and there are far fewer jury trials, it's a little bit different, but not a lot different. Our folks are usually preparing the night before and they're meeting with victims and witnesses uh, right before trial. And so that's what it looks like uh, from our side. I, I think, and I can't say what it looks like from the public side, um, but I can guess if I'm the victim of a crime and I don't have any contact with the prosecutor's office because we literally don't have the resources to reach out to, to victims oftentimes prior to trial, uh, or usually prior to trial. And so I can imagine you know, being a victim of a crime and you know, not hearing anything other than maybe getting a subpoena for the, for the trial. And then if, if the case settles uh, or, or pleads out, I might not hear anything at all. Uh, unless I've made a restitution claim. And, and that's the other part of the resource issue is that more than anything, it affects our ability uh, to go after restitution for crime victims um, because we just simply don't have the resources uh, to pursue it. We can ask for it, um, but whether the crime victims uh, ever get restitution uh, is, is not something that we can devote a lot of time to. Um, So there's not a lot of contact with our office. And um, 
And, and that also comes into play with uh, PFMA cases where typically it's, it's more important to have uh, contact with the victims and, and be able to reach out to the victims and talk to the victims be, you know, long before you ever get to trial. Um, and you know, I, I was a prosecutor uh, back in my younger days with, uh, with the United States Attorney's Office and I prosecuted a lot of uh, uh, child criminal uh, sex cases. And I can tell you that um, in those kind of sorts of violent crimes, violent cases, it's really important to have contact with the victims because they really need to know that you're on their side because oftentimes, um, you know, as a prosecutor, you feel like you're really not doing the victims uh, a favor sometimes, especially when you have to put them on as witnesses. But, um, but it's important to build a rapport and build a relationship with crime victims and, and honestly, we just don't have the time uh, to do that. Um, so I think I've probably pretty much used up my time. I'll pass it off to the judge. Okay. Judge Steve Bolstad. So, David, thank you again. Doing the numbers real quick: 10,000 cases a year, 192 cases a week. Do you work seven days a week, David, or five? I'm guessing probably five. Five days a week in the courts. So, 38 to 40 cases a day. That's five cases an hour that they're in front of the judge. So now we hear from Chief Police, Fire, the attorneys, and it all rolls to our Honorable Judge, Steve Bolstad. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not used to speaking with the mic. Uh, my name is Stephen Bolstad. I'm the uh, Municipal Court Judge here. I've been in this position for nine years. Prior to that, I was a Deputy County Attorney for 14 or uh, 12. I took the office in 2014. I was a prosecutor from 2003 to 2014. I will tell you, I, I was born and raised in this community, love this community, still love this community, still have a lot of pride in this community. But I want you to think back to 1970. This community at the time, Anaconda Company was still going, Boeing was out at the base, there were a lot of things going for it, and we had, you know, superb uh, police force, we had a superb fire department. Um, my dad was a uh, deputy fire marshal for the state of Montana in the late 60s and 70s, and he would always make sure we drove by the progress of the uh, fire stations when we'd come up from Helena, um, just to see how they were doing, and then we eventually moved back here. But one thing I want to note about fire and safety levies is in the late 60s and 70s, Butte, who was going through a hard time, the mining companies were going through a hard time, the people of Butte were going through a hard time, there was a lot of arson, a lot of buildings being burned down for contracts, uh, insurance fraud, etc. And there was also a lot of crime. And at the time, I can remember as a kid, my friends calling it the armpit of America. And I love Butte, I love the people of Butte, they're resilient, they've done a great job. But I'm afraid that here, that's what we may, be, may become. Um, in my opinion, Great Falls has got a lot going for it, um, the people especially, and I think the fact that we haven't raised a safety levy in 50 years is, is a testament to that. Um, the city has been able to wring as much as they could out of the people that work there, and they're pretty much proud to do that, but it's become time. As a court, as uh, David said, we are 
between the third and first busiest court in the state of Montana every year. I, even when Judge Luth was there, my predecessor, same thing. Um, we have got it down to a science where we try to get through quickly. But as David was saying, the prosecutors, they come in, they have bags under their eyes, they are tired out, and I'm sitting there yelling at them because they maybe didn't get a hold of somebody. Um, it, it, it's a very difficult position. Uh, the police officers under great strain. They, you know, they're short, short-handed. Uh, sometimes they come in, they're not ready for a trial because they've been out the night before on some incident that kept them busy and now they have to come into my court in the morning. I know it sounds like a lot of gloom and doom, but we're not there yet. And I say yet because we could be. The uh, court, the biggest things we've faced in the last five to six years, of course, is uh, the uh, amount of people working. The commissioners have, uh, they provided a second judge uh, a few years back. We haven't been able to hire one. Then the law changed and you could no longer hire. They had to be elected, so that will be on the ballot. Um, we are also getting a second courtroom, and that is going to put additional stress on David and, uh, but we have to do that in order to have these cases tried in 180 days. Now, when you think of misdemeanors, most people don't think it's too big of a deal. Well, when I was a prosecutor, I prosecuted everything from domestics, dog cases, all the way up to murders. And I will tell you, when you have 1,400 cases, it is a high degree of stress because you're working quickly and trying to make sure nothing is missed. Those prosecutors, that prosecutor office, they get a hold of victims all the time. Uh, we have sentencings every Wednesday, and uh, most generally, without fail, they have at least sent a letter to every victim asking if they have restitution. And we get it ordered, but it always doesn't get paid. I'm sure you've heard that from people. And to tell you the truth, we're, we're kind of... Uh, non-effective in getting our people to pay these days. But going back to 1970, look at how much has changed since 1970. We were in the midst of the Vietnam War, um, still had family units, didn't have computers, uh, except for maybe the space program or you know some of the bigger businesses. Crime has changed. Crime has changed, fires have changed. The issues that every one of you face on a daily basis has changed since 1970. We have done our best to keep up, but it's starting to be sink or swim. Um, there's uh, also, I have to say, and throw David under the bus and myself, there's been a lot of attorneys since 1970s. So the requirements of firemen, policemen, city attorneys, and courts have changed since 1970s. Many more I's to dot, many more T's to cross. And it's starting to get to the point where if you don't do that, I shouldn't say starting, it already is, we're liable. The city of Great Falls is liable. And the amount of attorneys, the amount of allegations that I hear every day of this or that, or maybe the fire department didn't, you know, uh, get there quick enough or whatever, it increases. It's not going down. And I don't think it will go down because as long as there's attorneys around, and I am one, so I speak freely, they're going to be looking for that dollar. Um, so 
This safety levy, as far as the court goes, we are looking at, number one, a uh, uh, jury uh, liaison or a jury clerk. Uh, during COVID and prior to COVID, we started seeing an increase in mistrials because we could not seat a jury. We uh, called 30 every trial setting. We have three trial settings a week, so 90. We generally got anywhere from two to 12 to show up. So in order to increase the odds, we started pulling 50. So we call 150 per week. Now we get maybe 20, and we can seat a jury with 20 people. A jury clerk would be somebody that my clerks right now do the best they can. They're overworked, but they uh, try to contact jurors the night before and make sure that their addresses are correct, make sure they're going to show up. We have a better turnout, but it is still lacking. We have a lot of people that do not want to show up for a jury trial and, and sit jury for a day. The other um, position that I am looking for is a compliance officer. Compliance officer would hopefully uh, make sure that people are paying their fines, paying their restitution, but also reach out to many of the mental health uh, cases that we have. We have many more out on the streets because changes in laws, uh, changes in uh, living conditions. Uh, many of these people just need somebody to help them get through programs. We do that with mental health court. We would continue to do that with a little more outreach from the court. What does that mean for Great Falls? Hopefully, fewer people downtown that are just lingering or being swept aside or dying on our sidewalk. Um, and we would be able to have the juries that we need to call because if we go past 180 days and the defendant hasn't continued, it's a speedy trial. The case is dismissed. So if your chainsaw got stolen, the only way you're gonna get the restitution is to go sue them yourself in small claims court. Um, again, it doesn't sound like a big thing, but start stacking that up to 11,000, it's quite a bit. So I will, uh, with that, turn it over to Katie and uh, Shane. Well, thank you. We thank the four of you for what you do for our community as well, too. And we saved the best for last. Uh, Katie, uh, working with the school resource officers. And again, they're going to be sharing stories of the impact of criminal activity on our youth and our community. So, Katie, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, thank you, Shane. Again, my name is Katie Cunningham. I'm a sergeant with the Great Falls Police Department. So, I oversee about 10 people, which is a lot. <laughs> um, especially when you talk about span of control. I oversee four school resource officers and about six special victims unit detectives who oversee child crimes. So let's start with the school resource officers. Um, I have four, one in each high school, one in each middle school. The middle school SROs also oversee at least 11 elementary schools. Um, the impact on the SRO program has been immeasurable. This last year was just outrageous. Um, I can't even begin to tell you how violent kids have gotten with the school resource officers, um, how violent the schools have gotten. I mean, look at the news. You guys probably all saw it last year. It was pretty rough. Um, so it's, it's taken a long toll on our officers, and we just needed help. Um, for example, on a daily basis, our school resource officers get no break. So they work from 7.45 to 3.45 in the afternoon, and they don't take a lunch break. 
They don't get to schedule doctor's appointments. They don't get to go to school, kids, you know, programs. They don't get to do those things. There's just literally no time. Um, they'll be sitting in an office talking with a student who had a vape, and all of a sudden they're getting an emergency phone call from an elementary school because there's a child standing on the desk throwing things and they need law enforcement intervention. This is a daily occurrence. Um, so these guys are worn out. I'm truly not only worried a little bit about the children's safety just in schools altogether, not to mention the school threats that we have on a regular basis that we have to do assessments for, but just the overall wear and tear on these SROs. How long can they take this? I just, it, I just don't know. That's the hardest part for me is seeing just the wear on them every single day. Um, so we definitely need a couple more SROs. Uh, we wanna put at least one more in Great Falls High because Great Falls High has become a little bit of a, a challenge to us. And so we need the extra involvement from law enforcement there just to keep kids safe. Um, on the other side of things, as far as the special victims unit goes, um, so we investigate all child deaths, uh, child sexual abuse, physical abuse, um, neglect, malnourishment, all that kind of thing. But one of the biggest pushes we've had recently is our drug endangered children. Um, our drug-endangered children are something that's been overlooked, and a lot of people probably don't even know what that is. But a drug-endangered child is somebody, a child who's been exposed to drugs because of their caregiver's misuse. Um, a lot of parents don't know that when you smoke meth in the bathroom, your child still gets exposed. You still test your child test positive. We have kids testing positive for fentanyl, and I can't, I can't even begin to describe the amount of tests that come across my desk. I can't believe we haven't had a child die yet. I mean, I, I'll turn to my lieutenant and be like, well, we, we just made it another day. I don't know how we did it. Um, but all these kids are testing positive for very terrible drugs that has lifelong effects. I can't investigate them most of the time. I assign them to investigators. We can't do it because, well, now the child's no longer in technical danger and we have to go help this other child who is in danger because CPS has already stepped in and removed that child. So um, we need to backfill our drug endangered child investigator, which we could do with this levy. Um, that person has been tasked with investigating all these crimes and I can tell you they're very beneficial. I'm not one who just wants to throw the hammer and say, hey, you exposed your child, you should be in trouble, you should serve time. But I'm telling you a lot of times we sit down with these parents and they have no idea. They know they use drugs, right? They, they make that choice, but they have no idea they're exposing their kids to it because they think if I go smoke it in the garage, it's not gonna get on me, it's not gonna get on my child, but come to find sitting in that interview room with parents, they break down, they have no idea. They've been struggling with the addiction, they just didn't know it was affecting their kid that badly. I myself have adopted two children who are drug endangered, I tell you, it has long life effects. Um, so we need to get back to helping those kids, stopping the cycle, investigating those complaints. Even if nothing comes of them, educational purposes all in itself, and I know Beth's gonna talk a lot about, probably about you know, substance abuse. Um, and unfortunately, I did let Captain, or uh, sorry, Chief Newton know recently that we do have to decide which child sex crimes we're gonna investigate, and I can't even begin to tell you how difficult that is. Um, it's very difficult to get these referrals across my desk and say, well, I'm sorry, um, I'm sorry, I, I believe you, I believe that you were abused, probably by your own caregiver or your own parent, but I can't do anything to help you because you're no longer in danger. There's just nothing I can do, and it's, it's terrible because studies have shown that even just having an officer investigate their complaint, take their information, and just say, hey, I'm really sorry this happened to you, let me connect you with some resources, it increases their ability to have effective and productive lives significantly, and I can't even give them that. 
even if it never goes to prosecution. It helps these victims, and I can't even give them that, and that's heart-wrenching. So unfortunately, we're working about, when I was an investigator, I was doing about 100 cases a year. Um, I just, and there was three of us, so we had about 300, 300 just between the three of us. Um, just in the last 24 hours, I assigned three cases to one investigator. I mean, and she just was like, what am I supposed to do with this? And I'm like, we just gotta do our best. We just have to do what we can do. But that's the disheartening part of all of this, is I just have to keep signing them out and we just say, hey, we're not gonna compromise kids' safety. We're gonna do what we can to keep kids safe but I'm worried the wheels are gonna fall off because they've already kind of started to. If we can't start helping these kids that are being exposed to drugs, living in drug houses, um, we just, there's not much to do. So I'm a little concerned about that, but I can tell you and I can guarantee we will not compromise children's safety. Our SRO program is ex extremely important to us. Just this summer we did active shooter training um, to prepare our SROs and our patrolmen for that. Um, it was a very significant training. Um, but I'm just worried about how long that's gonna take before a crisis hits our community, either with a child or in a school. So I'm open for questions at the end. Question real quick, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, and if you don't know the answer right now, that's fine, but we have four school resource officers in our community. We're the second largest school district in the state, so that's roughly 2,500 kids per officer. Do you know how many Billings has, or Missoula, or Kalispell, or the uh, off the top of your head? Um, I'm off the top of my head. I know it's more than ours. Um, I want to say they have six, roughly right around there. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. And now we'll turn it over to Shauna with the uh, Cascade County Juvenile Detention Center. Thank you. Um, you're probably wondering, well, what the heck are you doing here, your county? Um, well, we are directly impacted by uh, the city with, we do hold the youth that are arrested here in Cascade County, and uh, we rely heavily on our Great Falls Police Department to assist us when we have youth that are either out of control. Um, we rely on our fire department when we have youth that are out of control and need medical. Um, so we do work hand in hand every single day uh, with the GFPD. Um, one thing that I can tell you is uh, I've been in this business for 30 years. I've been at the Juvenile Detention Center for 29 and a half. And we started out with eight beds in 1994. And in 2000, we took those eight beds to 16 beds. Our capacity now is 24, but my average daily population is 24.7. I wouldn't want to be that 0.7 of a kid. But uh, our, our needs are continuing to grow. And we are a regional facility, so it's not just Cascade County kids that we hold. However, being a regional facility, we do have to limit our beds that we have available for Cascade County. So there are times when uh, we'll have an officer show up and we're like, well, geez, we're really sorry, but unless it's a felony, um, we're not gonna be able to accept them. And uh, that's, that's tough because some of these misdemeanor crimes are pretty heinous, but we have other kids that take precedence, as Katie was talking about, with our sexual assaults and our aggravated assaults and our uh, felony partner family member assaults that have to take up those beds from other counties that do not have facilities. Uh, last year, from July 1 to June 30th of this year, we held 183 uh, Cascade County youth. And while that doesn't sound like many, we probably turned away about 50. So, it is tough when we can't hold kids in Cascade County accountable. 
uh, but again, it comes down to public safety for the state of Montana, basically. Uh, right now, with our uh, assault with the weapons, they've about tripled in the last five years. And out of 183 youth, we had 36 that were charged with assault with a weapon. That doesn't include the partner family member assaults that included a weapon. That doesn't include the aggravated assaults. That doesn't include the sexual assaults. It's crazy to see the crimes that are happening now compared to when I first started in this business. And at one point, about four months ago, I had five youth in the juvenile detention center for homicide. That is a huge number. And I'd like to say that we're seeing improvements, but we can look back to COVID, and ever since COVID, our court systems are backed up. We're still paying the price for that. The average length of stay for a kid five years ago was about eight days. The average length of stay now is about 25. So that shows that our bed spaces are not only limited, but we have youth that are staying in the facilities for a much longer period of time. And as Katie mentioned studies, studies show that the longer that youth are in detention, the more apt they are to end up in an uh, adult detention facility or prison. So the reason that I'm here tonight is to basically share some information with you about not only the youth that we hold, but the issues that they're facing. And not only are we seeing partner family member assault, um, we're seeing repeated partner family member assault where youth are chasing parents with machetes, knives, all sorts of different types of weapons, and they're not just coming in once, they're not coming in twice, they're coming in three and four times. And that's scary when you see the number of assaults that are happening in our community. And I'm not even seeing all of them that happen. There's a lot of kids that are cited and released, or if there's a parent, um, maybe a step-parent, another family member that can take those youth, Sometimes that's an option too, so that they don't come into detention because of the lack of bed space. As far as drug use, I can tell you that we urinalysis test every youth that comes into the building, and we have about 89% of our youth that come in are either under the influence or test positive for some sort of alcohol or drugs. We used to test for five substances, we now test for 14. And we have kids that come in for multiple uh, drug issues and are testing positive for amphetamine, methamphetamine, fentanyl, barbiturates, uh, you name it, uh, they're coming in positive for it. So we're seeing a lot of drug use that's impacting criminal behavior, and with that comes mental health. So we're also seeing an increase of youth that are being brought into the facility because there's simply nowhere else to put them. They've been, they're, they're not able to go to Shodare because they have uh, an assault on their record. So they're a danger to other smaller children in Shodare. So we see youth that are coming in that are sitting in the facility for an extended period of time. I have, right now, I have five kids that have been in the facility for over 200 days. We are a, we're a long-term detention, but long-term detention is supposed to be 90 days. So we're warehousing kids uh, for a lot longer period of time than what we, our original intent was to be. And so I think that it's imperative that as a community we start to look at the kids that we're, we're servicing. We're seeing a lot of kids that are moving in from other states. Um, 
We're seeing kids that have been transient, living on the streets. Uh, not too long ago, our homeless population here for juveniles was 464. I'm not sure what it is now in the school, school system as of today. But a lot of these kids, especially in the winter months, will commit crime in order to have a safe place to stay. So we really do have an issue here when it comes to our youth and how it's impacting us. And it's, it's unfortunate that we've had to come to this point where at some point I'm going to have to build more beds. And unfortunately, they're going to come. And the juvenile detention center is not, not uh, supported by any type of levy. So we pay for our own beds um, as, as a juvenile detention facility. And I, my goal was always to put juvenile detention out of business. That's really why I went in, is I hope we never really need juvenile detention. And as we continue to grow and continue to add beds, we've, we've used just about every nook and cranny that we can in order to house youth. So in the back of the room back there on the back table, I actually brought a handout so that you can see uh, the number of youth that we held and what each crime was that those youth were held for. And some youth were definitely repeat offenders. Uh, we see a lot of recidivism, just like the guilt system does. And some have multiple crimes when they're arrested. So if you're interested, please grab one of those. Um, it'll give you our average age, which is about 15. It'll show you how many males compared to females we held. Um, it'll show you the average length of stay for our Cascade County youth. Um, it'll break it down by race. But I think when you look at the number of assaults that our youth are coming in for, from aggravated assault, simple assault, uh, sexual assault, assault with a weapon, you're gonna be astounded as to what we're actually producing here in Cascade County. Thank you. Thank you for that. And again, that form is in the back and I don't know if someone wants to grab them, maybe pass them around, but again, assault with a weapon, 36, that's three a month. Obstructing a peace officer, other public servant, 35 over the year, again, three a month. Theft, property theft exceeding $1,500, 20 cases last year. That's not their first time they committed a theft. I've ran retail stores for years. Typically, if we caught a shoplifter, they'd have $100 on them. If it was an employee that we caught, typically 1000 So think about all the times they've committed these thefts to get up to where they were comfortable stealing $1,500. And again, that's the impact in our community. So, Shannon, again, thank you for what you do and helping out in the Juvie Center as well, too. So, appreciate that. But grab that form, take a look at it. You're going to be blown away by some of these numbers. So, Beth Morrison with Alliance for You. Thank you. You've been a great advocate in our community as well and lots of information, education on drugs and uh, how that impacts our youth in our community. So, we're excited to have you on our panel tonight, too. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I am the Substance Abuse Prevention Program Manager here at Alliance for Youth. I'm also assigned to cover Great Falls and Cascade County under a grant that the state of Montana has under the Federal uh, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, otherwise known as SAMHSA. Um, Alliance for Youth has been around for nearly 40 years. It was started by a group of concerned citizens that were concerned about underage drinking. And to this day, Substance abuse prevention is at the very core of all of our programs here. So what do I mean by prevention? I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a little uh, story here. Um, let's say there's a group of people walking along the Missouri River um, along the trail and they start to see children floating down the river. Well, they, they concern citizens, so they wade into the river and they start pulling these kids out of the river. But they can't get them all, 
they're floating by, and they're doing the best they can. And then one of the people decides to get out of the river and start walking upstream. And they said, where are you going? We need to save these kids. And this person says, I'm going upstream to see who's throwing them in the river. That's what prevention is about. And so that is really at our core here. And I say this all the time, substances do not stay in their own lane. They jump that curb and they veer right into you know, crime, um, child abuse and neglect, mental health, suicide, human trafficking, parenting issues. The list is actually endless. Okay? And so what we're seeing now here with our youth is really a lack of hope is what they're, they're seeing. And that is leading to a lot of mental health concerns. And they do turn to substances to try to self-medicate. And um, we are trying to work very hard in this community to provide them with better means to cope uh, through some great programming here. But you know, much like uh, addiction, we see generational and trauma with families. Um, I'm sure law enforcement is seeing crime as generational as well, going through certain families. And for me, I really see prevention and education as a really absolutely key essential to addressing this problem. But if we do not have changes in our local policies and ordinances at the city, county, and state level, we are going to continue to see the consequences of the commercialization of addiction. I'm not going to get into specific substances, whether they're legal or illegal, but we really, before we can have a conversation about what our youth are struggling with and their turn to substances, we really need to address the highway that youth are getting these substances, and that is through the vape. That device alone can lead them, it, it can be hacked. I tell youth when I talk to them, you can put grape jelly in a vape. You don't know what's in a vape. And so, you know, they're, they're just, they're primed for addiction, and they're, this is the mechanism that they're really using to uh, get access to substances. And I spent a great deal of my time in the schools. It's one of the favorite things I get to do. I get to go hang out with fifth and sixth graders and provide them with some facts and information so they can make better informed decisions for themselves. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's effective, but, Without the laws and ordinances to surround that and add to it, it's, you know, I wonder how effective it's going to be in the long run. Now, just this last year, I was called to join an SRO at one of our elementary schools to counsel five third graders that were caught vaping on the playground. These are eight and nine-year-old kids, babies in my mind. They can't comprehend what nicotine is, let alone how addictive it is. They have no idea what is really in those devices, thousands of toxic chemicals and metal particles. They, they don't even have an idea of how their brains are wired for addiction. And they have no idea that this industry is targeting them and marketing to them. Just today, I shared an alert about a, a product that's on the market for back to school time. It is a set of 20 highlight, uh, vapes look like highlight markers. And they are 20 different flavors, and they look exactly like highlighters. So these devices are designed to be uh, cool and attractive, but very uh, covert. And so, you know, it, when, you, when I look at the statistics, and I know that 30% of our high school students in Montana are using vapes, compared to 6% of adults across this state, that's where you tell me where the market is. 
okay? I might have a vape owner that says, I don't sell to kids and I'm not disputing that, but kids are the ultimate end consumer. So um, that is a really important thing. So one of the easiest way that I am trying to work towards, and I see our community that you could help support, um, and there's no cost to the community, and there's no additional burden on law enforcement to do this, is at the city, county, and hopefully at the state level, we really need to see e-cigarettes and vapes added to our Clean Indoor Air Act. I don't know about you, but when I'm sitting at a classy basketball game and some kids are vaping next to me, I don't know what they're vaping. I certainly don't want to breathe in the thousands of chemicals and toxic uh, metal particles that are in those devices coming out. They may be, may be vaping marijuana. You just don't know. And I think having those guidelines sends a clear message to our kids that we really give a damn about them. Okay? We want to send a clear, consistent message that these things are dangerous. They are a means that they're stumbling onto a lot of dangerous substances and that it's consistent across the board that this whole community and this whole state and hopefully this whole country can realize the dangerousness of these things. And, um, you know, really prioritizing, you know, the education, the prevention I do, but with that policy and ordinance change and law changes at those various levels is really essential. Um, it, it, it protects our kids, believe it or not. It really does. It sends them a message that we care, we're consistent, we know about the dangers, and we're trying to protect you. And until we really can do all of those things combined, um, you know, it's still going to continue to be a problem. And I wanted to thank uh, Shane for pointing out our Children See, Children Do campaign. Uh, there's posters back there if you want them. We're really trying to educate parents as well and community members about the things that they do. The kids are modeling after them. They learn it, they see it, they live it, they do it. And um, so that's an important aspect. And if you can help us get that message throughout our community, the more the better. Thank you. Thanks, Beth. And you know, the one thing that you mentioned was this generational. They see their parents do it, so they think that's the normal, so they do it. And uh, last fall, I believe it was, Crime Stoppers did a forum on, you know, drugs in our community and our youth and what you need to know. And Julie Bass is in the audience as well. And so she did an interview with a gentleman that grew up with the parents smoking marijuana. And so he did it, became addicted. And again, the brain develops until what, age 25? Fact check me, correct me if I'm wrong, but. We know that marijuana stunts that development. It stunts it. And so it already puts them behind the curveball. And it causes psychotic behavior. And if you don't believe me, go take a look at some of the city commission meetings where we were talking about recreational marijuana. And take a look at the behavior of some of the people that were advocating for it. And you will see psychotic behavior. And I'm not trying to make fun of them. But at the same point, we've got to stop the generational cycle that continues to go on. So. Um, Gavin, we'll turn it over to you. So Gavin Sunquist is a new member on our Crime Stoppers board as well, too. He's with Youth Dynamics. And we brought him on our board specifically because he's seeing the back end of everything as well, working with youth, the cases that come in front of him. And so we'll have Gavin share uh, his side of what he sees as well, too. So Hi, thank you. So my name's Gavin Sunquist. I work for Youth Dynamics. I'm one of the <clears throat> managers there. So I guess what I'm going to talk about is what we're seeing coming through our doors. We are seeing an influx of children coming into services due to the removal from Child and Family Services. 
And it seems like a majority of those removals are due to drug use or partner family assaults. Um, and so with that, I, our office, we have offices all over the state. Um, Great Falls, I believe, is the third biggest city in the state, and our caseload is anywhere from two to 300 kids, and that's more than Billings, that's more than Missoula's office. Um, any given week, uh, Child and Family Services is handing out four to six cases that are coming out into uh, the community, into um, businesses like ours to deal with the after effects of the trauma the kids are going through after the removal. Um, like that was said before, uh, these children see children do. I love that poster. Um, they see their parents doing drugs. They see their parents having criminal activities and they see it and they do it. <laughs> so that's our concern is there's such an influx of kids coming into services. Um, a lot of it's behaviors, um, like in the schools, they're just, it's out of control. Um, we do our best to work with the parents, but our biggest challenge is their addiction. And they're so into those addictions that that really puts up a roadblock. And so uh, we really beat our heads like, how do we fix that? And, uh, you know, it takes a village. Um, that's our biggest concern is that there's just too many kids coming into services. Um, how do we stop that? I'm not sure. Like I said, take the village. So I think if everybody was involved and everybody was uh, seeing and hearing what was really going on, I think we'd put a bigger stop to it. Um, I guess um, that's all I have. I can take questions at the end here too. Yeah. You bet. No, thank you. So, and I didn't quite catch the number, but you said you have more cases than buildings in Missoula. What's your case count that you see on an annual basis, roughly, Gavin? At any given time, we have, like I said, two to 300 kids in service, and that number can go up and down depending on if they go through our program successfully or if we have repeat people coming back due to the generational thing. Okay. Well, thank you for that as well, too. So um, we'll go to Q&A, but let's give this panel a round of applause for being here and sharing the information. So we'll turn it over to questions. I see a lot of you taking notes. And again, the, the purpose of the panel tonight is to educate and inform our community about what's going on, what they're seeing, the consequences of what they're seeing as well, too. Um, if you have a question, we'll have you step up to the mic in the center. But I kind of want to give you a little bit of background information as well, too. Uh, Rick Tryon, our, one of our city commissioners, felt strongly about putting together a, a Great Falls Crime Task Force team and so uh, assembled a panel of individuals. And so I was honored to be selected to represent the business community on that. Sandra Gwynn, our chair of our uh, crime, Cascade County Crime Stoppers also served as the chair of that. We had Chief Newton on that, Sheriff Slaughter on that, uh, District Court Judge John Parker, City Attorney at that time, Sarah Sexy, a few other members as well too. And we spent uh, six months just listening to the statistics. So why do I kind of have a little bit of background? two years ago serving on that panel, so that helped quite a bit. I come armed with information, but again, it was just incredible to continue to hear the stories uh, that we've heard uh, in our community and what's been going on in the Great Falls community and area as a whole. And um, so one of the things that we've landed on is that as the Great Falls 
Crime Task Force team were, were four things, kind of four pillars that we wanted to land on. Um, I'm going to kind of start at one part and work up towards the top. One of them was consequences. If criminals know that there's no consequences, they're going to continue their activity. They're going to. I ran retail stores for years, and fortunately, um, maybe unfortunately, uh, I really worked with my loss prevention team to make sure that we're stopping the criminal activity. We wanted to get the message out that if you're going to steal, you can steal wherever you want, but if you're going to come in my store and steal, we're going to catch you, we're going to call the police, there's going to be consequences. And so I would get a call and say, man, you've got a shoplifting problem. And I would tell the corporate, no, it's always been here, we're catching them now, and wait till you see my inventory at the end of the year. And our inventory numbers then would turn out very well. So we need to know that there's consequences for criminal activity. And you can see the burden on our prosecutors and our uh, judge and that team as well too, and what they're trying to do to make sure that this activity does have consequences. And when they don't have time to really evaluate a case and recommend tougher consequences, then they're just going to continue to go back and continue to do what they're doing as well too. So consequences was one. The other pillar we landed on was collaboration of partnerships. And that had been ongoing and already started by the time we met, but what can we do to make sure that we're collaborating with other partners in our community and partnering with them as well too. So um, one example is working with Alluvian Health and some of our mental health providers in our community. So when there's a situation going on, someone's having a mental breakdown or stress at that time, um, the cops show up, what does that typically do? That typically escalates and elevates the situation. But if we can send in mental health counselors to de-escalate it, then we find that we're helping with additional resources from the community to help the police then handle that situation with a good outcome instead of an outcome that maybe is escalated because the police show up. So again, consequences, collaboration, partnership. The other pillar we landed on was communication and education. And that's part of what we're doing right now. But we also kind of took it a step further. How can we maybe use the city's utility billing to educate our community on what you need to do at different times of the year? I don't know if you've taken a look at the statistic, but vehicle thefts in the wintertime, we're second in the state. That's not a statistic we want to be number two in the state. We're just behind billings. So if we can, again, before the cold comes in, start saying, hey, folks, we understand you might want to go out and start your car. But don't leave it and don't leave the keys in it. And if you do, lock it up. It'll get stolen. And we had a chamber member. She ran into a business real quick. 30 seconds, her car was gone. And a trip outside of Cascade County and back, and her car's wrecked and a number of other things. And so you hear these stories and the impact it has in our community. Again, a quick run in, run out. And the person said, well, I saw someone jump in your car and take off. Why didn't you say something? Well, I thought they were with you, so didn't know. So again, how can we communicate proactively to our citizens to make sure that they're doing everything they can to prevent crime in the first place? And then the last thing we landed on, and again, the reason for our forum this evening is providing resources. And so again, we took a look at what the other communities are doing. Helen are just recently passed two public safety levies. Billings has passed two recently and three within the last, I'd say, 15 years roughly. And again, I think we've given you the information that we are lacking the resources, basically staffing, in order for this team to do their job on the front end. We know if we get more police officers on our streets and within our community, they can start stop going from being reactive to being proactive with a program that we had landed on just a few years ago, DDACs, where they took a look at criminal activity within our community and they proactively put police officers in those areas because that was a deterrent to crime. 
At one point, we had a downtown officer. We all had his mobile cell phone number. If we saw an incident going on, we could text at him right away, Officer Hunt, and he'd be right there to help alleviate the situation, take care of it, and then provide that resource. And he got to know a lot of stories of these folks that were causing problems in the downtown area as well, too. They're not all homeless. They live right here. They don't have a purpose in life, so they hang out downtown and they cause problems downtown. So we don't have that anymore because, again, the pulling in of resources. So, again, the most important pillar and the one I landed on last was resources. And that's exactly what this public safety will do is provide resources for these folks that are overworked, stressed out, which, again, leads to high turnover within their departments, challenging to recruit and retain. And so, again, that's a reason why we've done this uh, forum tonight. So with that, we'll turn it over to anybody that has any questions. And I know some of you do. I, I know you. Uh, so step up to the mic and go ahead and ask away. Yeah. Someone's got to be first. I'm looking at you, Chris. Yes, Veronica from Great Falls College. Thank you. First of all, thank you for all that you do. I work with a lot of you, and um, it's been great. Um, you're, uh, you couldn't, uh, we couldn't ask for a better representation of the people of the community. Um, my first question is for um, to the police officers. Obviously, with all the overtime and all the additional, and not being able to be proactive instead of reactive, how many have you lost? How many people have you have just quit and said, I'm done, I'm not, I can't do this anymore, either because of family or whatever, and how difficult is it for you to recruit? Because obviously we're everybody short-staffed, and so even if we, I mean, hopefully you'll get the levy, and, um, but how are you going to staff it? Great question. We have that conversation every day. I just lost an officer recently. Um, he came to us from Conrad PD, and he was on our Hide a Drug Task Force. Um, and he left um, because essentially said, I'm just tired of it. I'm tired of the violence. I'm tired of fighting with people. And he actually went to another law enforcement job, just not police work. And in speaking to him, he said, there's nothing you can do to keep me here, no amount of pay, no amount of anything, because I'm just tired of it. Um, I'm getting ready to lose a couple more officers, not because they don't want to work for Great Falls, because of family reasons. And as a chief, I can never fault somebody for moving for the right reason, because the family comes... You know, we've lost officers because their spouse, they like working here, but their spouse says, I don't like it. So we said, either go with your wife unless you don't like her, right? <laughs> um, but it, it comes down to at times where the, the spouse is meant to other says, either you stay here or we're separating. And we say, go, you got to go. Um, Recruitment-wise, um, I, I don't like any of the generational thing, but I'm a Gen Xer. Um, and unfortunately, those of us that hire and recruit know that there's a difference in the generations. 94% of our hires are, are millennials. And right now, particularly the job market, we call them job hopping. Um, and those of you that are in a professional environment, you know that somebody, they will come and say, well, it's not so much about the loyalty of staying with the organization for 30 years, it's about what is best for me and my career path. So because of that, we're having to adjust our recruitment strategies, which means currently our, really our recruitment is, is, is archaic. It's more designed for the Gen Anchors and the Boomers. And in fact, I had a conversation with my hiring lieutenant today, and we've been having that ongoing discussion. We're having to change the thought process and the paradigm of what we're looking and how we recruit. 
So it is challenging, and then we can't forget about the national narrative. Um, Great Falls is usually about 10 years behind the times, five years behind the times, um, because of the George Floyd issue and all the, the civil unrest. Those, some of those mindsets actually are on our doorstep. We've had officers working on Central Avenue have people come by and yell and scream at them. Our assaults on officers are up, our resisting arrest is, is up. And, and that's a whole other conversation for uh, you know, society and how society uh, conducts themselves in respect for authority. And anybody who's in public service, whether it be uh, school system, um, healthcare, anything that deals with people is seeing, seeing that dynamic. So long answer to short question, it is challenging, and yes, we have lost officers. Some, not so many that um, just say, I'm just done. That's a very small percentage. Um, we average six and a half vacancies per year. Most of those are through retirements, or they just choose to leave to go to, a, to another department. Um, some every, now and then resign, like this officer I was, I was talking about. Um, but, but it is challenging because of the job market, because of low unemployment rate in Cascade County, uh, low unemployment rate nationally, and to be honest with you, not only with, with civilian or with, with law enforcement or dispatch, people just aren't as much in tune of committing to that lifestyle. It, it, it is a challenge. And our recruitment numbers actually, the numbers of applicants have actually gone down. So that's where we're having to change our thought process to reach out for um, long, again, what we're doing is we found out that, particularly with this new application pool, uh, we usually, from start to finish, it usually takes 120 days to get somebody on board, which is actually, compared to other agencies, is actually pretty fast. And we're still looking at streamlining that process. Currently, if somebody reaches out, if we send out an application, somebody reaches out, if we don't get back to that individual within an hour or two, we're, we're losing them. If we reach out to that person immediately, we stand a 21% better chance of getting that person in the process. That's how tight it is right now. And that's how we're having to change our thought process. Well, and with all the overtime, the retention, I worry about that down the road. Yeah. I mean, and, that wears hard and, people. And when you talk overtime, and we, and we had to do, and our officers did a great job of stepping up the plate and working overtime, but then it becomes that, um, it's like diminishing returns. So when you, you get an officer working a 10 hour, 40 minute shift, really that equates to about an 11 or 12 hour shift, five days a week, and they're exhausted. They're tired. Um, and then pretty soon it becomes a forced overtime issue. And then it's that perpetual cycle, and it, it just, yeah. So it, it, it is challenging, but, but our, our officers are doing a great job. My second question is for the fire department. Um, the ISO rating you said comes every five years, which of course affects our insurance rates overall. So we can't fix that until the next time we have a thing. How much will it affect it? Did it affect it to go up because we didn't do well with the rating? And how much can you move it down? I mean, how much, how much improvement does it take to get it to move more than one notch? So one is the best rating you can get. 10 is there's no fire department exists. So to put it in perspective, the volunteer fire departments in our county usually have an ISO rating of eight-ish, okay, to kind of put it in perspective. We were at a two and we slipped to a three. Um, and basically we're told we are gonna keep slipping a position every time we get audited if we do not begin to address the lack of coverage within our community. Um, to try to put this into perspective, we get a lot of phone calls we receive from insurance companies. In, in insurance companies, there is no standard um, across the board. I can't say this will equate to this. I, it would be very easy if we could, but we can't. 
But what I can give you is this perspective. Um, there's a lot of areas within our community that one side of the city street is protected by the city of Good Falls and is city proper, and the other side of the street is protected by the county. Okay. Um, this individual insurance company was calling for a residence and was trying to determine who is the response agency for that, uh, for fire uh, protection. Uh, it ended up being in the county, and so being that we've been gearing up for this for a long time, I started asking the insurance officer questions and said, so what would it have been if it had been city? And it had been about an $1,800 premium a year for the single family home. What it equated to being on the other side of the street was double that, almost $3,600. Uh, this insurance drop from a two to a three, it is going to be dependent on your carrier, but is not a, a significant impact to residential yet. And I will say yet. Can you jump two spots though? Can we go from a three back to a one? Or do we have to go to a two? Absolutely. Um, you know, the insurance services uh, office ha has been very receptive and I, we've, uh, I almost have them on speed dial. Um, but we were projecting what we were, as we were going through our good, better, best approach, we were saying, okay, how would this impact? How can we affect this? And if the bond and the mill levy are fully implemented, we can get back to that two rating. Now, that doesn't mean we can forget about it for the next 50 years and we got to continue to address the expansion, but it does get us back to where we're maintaining that. Just one final comment. I want to thank you both for your support for Safety Camp. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Another question? Yes, sir. I want to echo a thanks to the panel members for taking your time to be here. Uh, question specifically for Mr. Doyon. You talked about how you believe that this public safety levy, if approved, would get us to where we were supposed to be about 10 years ago. Uh, was that what I believe that was uh, your verbiage there? Yes. Um, so obviously one step at a time and there's a reason you chose to go with the blend of good and better as opposed to jumping straight to best but as city government you know you, you've got to think longer term so assuming that you know the levy gets passed everyone pops champagne some of these problems that we've discussed start getting ameliorated what happens in five years where now our public safety approach is it's like hey when like if it gets passed we're no longer 50 years behind the eight ball now we're only 10 Five years from now, we're 15 years behind the eight ball. Um, in terms of an incremental approach, what is there to keep this problem from rearing its head again in just a couple of years? Wow, that's a great question. How much time do I have for that? I'm just we'll joking. Give you another 10 minutes. There's a flood of thoughts that come to mind when you when you ask the question, and I'll kind of start with a big picture item that I think that you'll. Uh, understand. So we're way past due on our growth management plan update. And that guiding document is there for a reason. It's to help with controlled growth and development in the community. And it has many topical areas in it that are important for the planning board and the city commission to go back and review when they're considering development in the community. And so um, the, the technique that I had tried um, years ago was making sure that when we, the city did an annexation, and we have done a lot of small cumulative annexations that has kind of created the territorial issue that uh, Chief Jones was talking about, to bring an awareness at that point that uh, if we add this back into our portfolio, you know, growth is a good thing. 
but we have to provide services to that. So how do we recover that? Or where do we get to the point that we say, we're not gonna be able to properly address a service response to your area within industry standards because we're adding. So the, the internal conflict that I have observed through many commissions since I've been here is that most of the community wants growth. And, uh, and they've been very vocal uh, about that over the years through our development review processes, um, asking why we don't have Olive Garden yet, all those kinds of things that we end up dealing with as public officials. But the bottom line is, is that people want to see uh, growth and the commission is sensitive to that. So they want to allow growth, but they also understand that it's going to potentially be a stretch on our public safety posture and actually in some other areas as well. So I'm gonna be brutally honest with you and just tell you that what typically happens is, is that while uh, it's very ideal for any government official to be pointing those things out, what happens is, is that in reality is that other issues come before the governing body or the city that needs addressing. And uh, quite frankly, unless you have a very disciplined group of folks, they're gonna deal with that issue at hand. It's really difficult as much as you may talk about it in a plan and deal with it through your budget process to set aside money, to set aside funds to deal with that. And what I have seen uh, historically, and people will relate to this, it's just a little bit of a different venue, but the natatorium had to be closed because it had a catastrophic collapse on the front part of it. Was that telegraphed beforehand? Absolutely. So typically things get attention and it grabs the community's attention when it goes critical. And that's where we're having this conversation kind of tonight, because I know operationally what the impact is gonna be. So now that I just depressed every one of you, um, I think the growth management plan is gonna be a big deal for the community. And I, we have a new planning and community development director. And I also wanna make sure that we have an opportunity to engage those uh, folks that are also feeling the impact of the moderate, more than normal growth that the city has been experiencing in the last uh, couple of years. And then it's gonna take fiscal dis discipline basically to make sure that we're um, looking ahead. And um, I've heard questions from folks, you know, why did you wait so long? Why didn't you do more? And I can just tell you, um, because the way that we fund this stuff is through taxes, there's always a real hesitation amongst staff and elected officials to make that ask. But now that we've had this kind of cumulative impact, we're kind of at the point where we just need to put it before the voters and let them decide ultimately what it's gonna be. Better planning, um, I'd like to say that there's gonna be a discussion at, at the state level with regard to um, local government funding. That is a big part of this conversation that uh, we are aware of. It's something that the public probably wouldn't pay that much attention to. I always like to do a slide during our budget presentation that shows that we don't raise enough property taxes to cover our public safety needs. It's actually without the state funding that we have currently through our entitlement share, basically um, alcohol, liquor sales, those types of things. And it, it's just an illustration of how uh, little bit with our statewide property tax cap that we have to go and make adjustments with the needs that we have in a slow, moderate growing community. Wow, that was really long-winded, but I hope that helps a little bit. It did, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Anyone else? All right, we got two gentlemen stepping up. So, come on up, sir. You can sit in the chair right. Hi there. Um, 
everybody here did a great job. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that this is needed, no doubt. Um, it's certainly more needed, than, in my opinion, than, for example, the library levy. The library levy passed, I guess this one should pass too, except there's one problem. People are tax, tax, tax. Library levy, this levy, now this levy's coming up. And some people simply don't have the resources to pay for this. Even though they know the levy's needed, they're not going to vote for it. My question's to anybody. I started off by saying that we knew it was going to be a big ask, and I could see that the commission, as they debated and discussed which options to present to the taxpayers, that they really struggled with that. They knew that there was going to be a pretty big tax impact uh, to folks uh, on that ask. But here's, here's the bottom line with that, in my estimation, I'm not going to speak for the commission, is that part of our job is to educate the community on needs. The commission was presented with two different areas of need in the community, and they made a decision to go ahead and let the taxpayer prioritize which ones they felt that they wanted to fund. And uh, the discussion about public safety, quite frankly, has been ongoing for a long time, and there was, as I indicated earlier, a run-up with another levy, and, uh, and I don't expect people to follow the budget every year because it'll put you to sleep, quite frankly. So it's kind of tough to communicate this stuff, and then when it comes up, it gets people's attention, and some of the comments that we get is, well, why didn't you do anything about it before? So we try to go back and educate. Um, but I think that the voters are savvy. I think that they understand that the community is changing. I think that they understand that while there has been some limited investment in public safety, that uh, the time has come that, the, uh, that they need to consider um, you know, what the future holds for the community. We need to do um, our work here to educate folks on what the impacts of passing it and not passing are and let the voters decide ultimately you know, what that looks like and what they feel is in the best interest in the community. There's no doubt, there's no doubt that we know that there are people that are struggling with the tax burden in the community. And you know, just, just as an editorial aside, I would just share with you that when communities change and grow, and remember I just said a few moments ago that people wanted to see Great Falls grow, there's an impact to that. There's an impact across the board, and, and that's kind of the maybe the ugly side of growth or maybe the unintended consequence, but it does things like increase property values. It does things like it puts stress on your transportation system and your other services and so forth. So there's an impact to that as well. Um, you know, I agree that you know, if this levy isn't passed, you can be sure, you can be certain that business is not going to be coming in here. But if it is passed, you can be sure that, I mean, you can be, possibly, at least business may, may come in, may or may not. Uh, again, though, it's, uh, it's just the way I see it, it's just Joe Great Falls that lives downtown, he just doesn't have the resources. I'm afraid. I know this levy's needed, I know it is. The one thing I would add that there is a taxpayer protection of the statewide property tax cap on the general fund as it exists today. And uh, despite what people uh, may uh, view our budget process, we've tried to be very fiscally conservative 
despite the events that I shared with you earlier over the years uh, with things to make sure that we were still providing services. So um, if that voter doesn't feel that they can support that, then we're going through a democratic process for people to speak their mind and vote yay or nay, and, and, um, and they'll have to make decisions as a result of the community vote on that. Okay, well, thank you. And excellent question. I'll weigh in on a little bit as well, too. And again, running the chamber, I've had the opportunity to hear this several times, one at the town hall they had in June. We had them present to our business advocacy committee as well, too, and then our executive board last week and then tonight. So I'm able to kind of prepare some remarks ahead of time. But, you know, with anything, there's a pro and a con. Yep. You know, and when you weigh it, why are they always equal? But there will be a cost, one way or the other, whether this passes or whether this fails. So some of the cost, if this isn't passed, there will be a prior priority of calls. We got multiple calls. We already talked and gave you some numbers, how many often calls are coming into them. Someone's having a heart attack, there's an armed robbery, and there's a fire. Where are they gonna go to? So someone might lose their life because the fire and the armed robbery is prioritized due to staffing. Insurance costs, they, they will go up. They're going up for the city, they'll go up for homeowners. 41% of the city is outside of the national standard for the response time. Insurance companies know that. Their costs will go up. It will result in more criminal activity. Um, Great Falls is a hub for drug distribution. We know that. We've done forums on that. We've had the state DEA agent come in and talk about that. Um, the ISO rating is going to go up as well. Um, I know of a business downtown that lost their commercial insurance due to criminal activity downtown. There will be an additional cost as they go to try and find insurance companies. We want to grow our population. What do people look at? They're going to look for the housing market, number one. If they have children, they're going to look at schools. So what's the third thing they look at? Criminal activity, guaranteed. And so there's going to be a cost either way. And don't get me wrong, I we all fill in the pinch in our pocketbooks, all of us. But what do we want the cost to be to our community and potentially the cost to our future and future growth? It's an awesome question. Well, you know, I, I agree with I agree with every word you yeah. said. I really do. I agree with it. I am just afraid that, um, as I said, Joe Great Falls is going to say, "Well, uh, this expense and this one came up this year and this one came up." And I think if, if there was if there was a way that we could, you know, convince that person, yeah. this is to your favor, and here's why it's to your favor. Uh, the people in. Um, you know, Riverview or Fox Farm, you don't really necessarily have to convince them so much, but the person downtown, they have to be told or shown, why is this good for me? Why should I vote for this levy? Yep. And I'll share with you our business advocacy committee that we had them present three weeks ago, two weeks ago. Um, I had a number of them come to me afterwards and say, you know what, I was, I was on the fence. I don't want my taxes to go up. I don't want that to go up. But after I heard what they shared, I'm for this. We have to be for it. And so their purpose is to educate. We've invited you to then become the advocates in our community. We're not going to convince them all. And some are going to definitely be a hard no. But we got those people right in the middle. And so I've seen many of you take notes. And I'm going to ask that you then become the advocates on the reasons why. Great question. And thank you. Yeah, no, appreciate that. And if I may, Shane, uh, just a couple of engagement opportunities for the public that wants to know more. So we have a website, Safety in the Falls, that folks can go on and take a look at the information there if they uh, want more. 
Specifically, um, I would also just say that the City Commission has an option on the City's website if you want to be notified of meetings that are uh, going to be occurring and get an agenda so you can decide whether or not you'd like to be engaged with the Commission at a meeting. Um, by all means, it's a great way to keep informed on topics that are important to you. And then finally, we will be having another town hall on this topic from 6 to 8 p.m. It will be in the Civic Center on September 18th, and that's free, obviously, and open to everybody. So some more opportunities to learn about this. And I think at that one you have beverages and cookies. We, we didn't provide that tonight. So come for beverages and cookies and the city will take care of you. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Yes, yeah. sir. Hi, I am Tony Rosales. I represent the Cascade County Libertarian Party. But, you know, based off the, the last conversation, I think these two, it's a two-part question. Um, I think they'll be rather apt. But, you know, one thing I've noticed on, like, online forums, especially Reddit, you'll see some folks who are thinking about moving to Montana, um, and they'll see the crime statistics. I think just listening here, listening to the crime statistics are rather scary. Um, but something that's very interesting, on those forums, you see Great Falls residents also chiming in there saying those statistics are mainly for um, folks who are, who are non-strangers or non-stranger-related crime. Um, and so, honestly, it's actually rather safe for the average Great Falls person. Um, or the average Great Falls resident. So my two-part question for you guys is, one, do you think Great Falls is safe or will continue to be safe regardless if this levy is passed? And two, if yes, what can you say to help convince or, or talk to those average residents who, honestly, the levy will mainly affect their property taxes as opposed to anything else in their life? So, please. I'll handle the first part of that question. Overall, um, I do think Great Falls is, is a safe community, <clears throat> but Great Falls is growing. And Tony, when I spoke to your, your group here a while ago, um, what we're dealing with now is, is again, the, the three components of crime, traffic, and quality of life. Right now, we're dealing with more violent crimes as far as uh, domestic violence. We're dealing with additional violent crimes of uh, some of the shootings and stabbings. Um, we're dealing with, and think about traffic as well, um, I remember reading a study where the actual, if somebody gets involved in, what people lose, they think, think completely about crime. Think about a traffic crash that we have limited ability to enforce right now. And what is the financial and physical impact of a, a large traffic crash that's, that's interrelated? Economic-wise, job loss, those are huge components for people that I think they, sometimes they forget about. That's an important component of, of their daily safety in Great Falls. Um, as, as far as the levy goes in our ask, it's going to take us time. And as we spoke before, it, this isn't going to be, if, if the community decides to pass this, this isn't something that's going to happen overnight. It's going to take us time to get those resources in order um, through the hiring, uh, through the implementation of putting people back on the street. Um, what was the second part of your question? So yeah, it, it, you sort of answered it, but the first part was yes, is it safe, but then that second part, like for those residents, and I understand the fact that, you know, if mm -hmm. you do get in a, uh, in a crash incident, then yeah, yeah there, there will be some impact. But again, the average Great Falls resident, they likely don't deal with that on, on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. So when this levy is passed, it seems the main thing that is affecting those Great Falls residents is the property tax increase mm -hmm. as opposed to affecting any other portion of their um, regular day-to-day -day living. Yeah. Let me, let me go back to the first question. I'll let Greg talk about the second. And the third part of our priority matrix is the quality of life issues. Mm -hmm. um, and w when I'm talking quality of life, I'm talking about when you're out in your yard and you're playing with your family or with your family, you want to see a patrol go, go by. 
um, when, we, when Shane talked about the DDAX program, that's data-driven approaches to crime and traffic safety. But the emphasis is you focus on traffic where you have patrol cars in that area. And what does that do? That deters crime because no one wants to break into your car or steal your garden gnome or break into your, your house or your garage, those property crimes, those quality of life crimes, because you have a patrol car out there. So you have to look at it as all-encompassing, um, where additional officers on the street provides that more, more proactive aspect. Because you're right, the average Great Falls citizen um, is going to be dealing more with the quality of life crimes and the property crimes than so much the violent crimes. The, when I spoke in front of the commission this past, this past winter, and we had that, that rash of homicides and those shootings, the majority of that occurred where those people knew one another. Right? It wasn't a, a victim, a, a victim was, their victim, but it wasn't an anonymous crime with the exception of the officer-involved shootings. But what really impacts individuals is that quality of life issue. They want to go out into their parks. They don't want to have to deal with um, you know, some of the transient issues. They don't want to have to deal with going out and having their car stolen. They don't have to deal with those things that has a significant impact on them. And where we're at right now is reactionary. We have minimal capacity to deal with those quality of life issues right now because we're strictly reactive going from call to call to call. That answer your question, yeah. Tony? Okay. Very quickly, it's a great question. I think generally we're safe. I think we could do better. I think that based on what we're hearing through the crime task force and the folks that we had to come in and provide information about what is happening with drugs and the impact of that is very significant in this community for sure. And I do think we're growing a little bit. So our demographics and some of those things are going to impact. But I'm going to go back to the example. It's a horrible example. I'm really good at bad analogies if you've ever heard me talk. And so um, I just think about the uh, natatorium, how the facade fell off the front of that, and then we had a big chunk fall off the Civic Center. We were telling folks, I tried to close the natatorium years ago because of the heaving in the building. I thought that structurally it would fail at some point. Similarly, we were kind of warning uh, the decision makers in the community that at some point we would have to tackle the Civic Center. There is no way around it. I think part of what we are tasked to do as public officials and in supporting the efforts of the decision makers, the city commission, the legislative arm of the government, is to basically tell them when we see warning signs that we have concerns about our ability to serve at a level that we think the residents um, serve. And the thing that we internally struggle with all the time is that you really don't know that there's a problem until you need one of these folks here. And so there's a population that gets serviced a lot by these folks up here, uh, but there's a, there's a population, I think it's the one that you're talking about, that until you had a call about, I don't know, I always like to use a skunk in the yard because as a city manager I've got a complaint. I mean, it was the worst crisis this person had experienced, the skunk, and nobody responded. So I just think, another great analogy for you, but I just think that people's expectations are higher than what we may be able to deliver on. So our communication to the commission is, is that um, here are some things that we could do to help mitigate that. And one other thing we think about as chief and staff wise, is when you look at Great Falls, uh, sometimes we just focus on the population. I think uh, we have underrepresented people in Great Falls from the census. We, we truly believe that. You only need to drive up 10th Avenue South during a Friday afternoon or during the daytime. It seems to be getting busier. Great Falls services, because we've got all these outlying communities. So think about, about the capacity of not only the police department, the fire department, uh, municipal court, and the judge's office. Great Falls is a hub for a lot of outlying areas. So we service a significantly higher population than what really the census says. 
Um, so we have taken account, plus we had taken into account when Calumet was here, an increase of workers. We're, we're uh, thinking about the ground-based strategic deterrent when they start redoing all the, the missiles in 2026. Add, uh, estimation of 5,000 additional people in our community dealing with that. So we have to think longer term of what actually are we servicing rather than just focusing on what we think the population is. And then Malmstrom, that, that doesn't count for, you know, that doesn't count for uh, the census for Great Falls, but there's an additional uh, group that um, we have to take into consideration as well. So it's not just, not just the city of Great Falls, it's all everything surrounding it that uses our resources. It almost seems like expectation setting is, is a common theme that is coming out, especially when, when I see on, on Facebook or any other social media when someone makes a, a comment or quip, especially for the police department, seeing like six, six, six officers at, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a scene. Um, and so I wonder if, if that's a major component that should be focused on, is just setting those expectations with what you guys are able to do given the current um, constraints. And I think that's what this levy conversation has really brought about is what are the expectations we should have of our, of our law enforcement and fire department and, and the rest of the, the services provided. Well, and I just wanted to add that uh, another aspect to look at this as is that uh, crime criminals are like water. They go to the lowest point. If communities around us that are relatively the same size, Billings, Bozeman, Helena, all of them are funding their safety where are they going to go? The criminals, they're coming here. I already see it every day. The amount of people that I see from out, outside of the city is incredible. And a lot of times I'll ask them, what are you doing here? Do you have a place to live? No, I'm just kind of hanging with a friend or I'm just doing this or doing that. And then I end up seeing them three more times before they actually leave town. Um, I don't see a change in that if we don't, do something, um, and you were talking about, uh, you know, how, how does a common person get affected or anything? Well, I'll tell you, like I said, every Wednesday I have restitution hearings for somebody who's driving a vehicle uninsured and smashes into another one. And I have seen over the last nine years an increase in that. And I don't know how many of you drive down. I live on the north side. I drive first and second north all the time. The amount of crash cars on the side of the road after a Friday or Saturday night, it's just amazing. And as you heard Chief Newton saying, some of those get the lowest billing because, you know, you have a violent crime somewhere, you do have to have six officers there. Or you do have to have uh, the SWAT team there or, you know, any of those things. So some of these things get put on the back burner. Well, as criminals see more of that, or they see burned out buildings, or they see this or that, they know they're in a community that really doesn't care, that they can get away with it. So I think that is how it's going to affect. And also, insurance, the costs on the back end, yeah. If, if you don't mind me asking, so no. you mentioned like a lot of, um, a lot of folks are coming to Great Falls. Um, and, and committing crimes, would you be able to say like where they're coming from? Do you, do you know an idea of those, those statistics at all? Uh, not statistics wise, but I can tell you I see Kalispell, I see Billings, and then I also see West Coast. West Coast. Okay, thank you. Thank you. I'm gonna just jump in a little bit as well too while Chief Jones puts his thoughts together. 
we had a presentation with Captain John Schaefer and talking about criminal activity in Great Falls. And we saw slight ticks in drug use and things like that, but what was appalling was the sharp increase in violent crime. And that's exactly what we've been talking about here as well, too. So we've got more criminal activity on that. And um, the other part is what Chief Noon said. If they're not stopping people for traffic citations because they're running to the call and they just don't have the time to stop, then we're saying that behavior is okay. So the person that's speeding is going to continue to speed and then cause the car wreck that you just mentioned involving someone else. And if we're not stopping them for basic tra traffic violations and then also citing them for no insurance, we're encouraging that behavior. So this levy is to proactively help so we can start again stopping the bad activity before it develops into more bad activity. So uh, Chief Jones, and I'd like someone to come on up and see if we maybe have a question for the panel on the uh, end of it on your right hand side. Um, I have a couple of questions, but uh, we'd like to step it up. So can I speak to the average It's up to Jones if he wants to defer the mic to you at this point. I'm not going to get in the middle of you two. Uh, I've been thinking about that since, since you said it. That the, you know, the average citizen of Great Falls um, is going to say it's a safe place to live, doesn't notice any change. And I, I don't know who you're talking to. Um, and I wasn't born here, but I've lived here for 31 years. And I've seen a lot of changes in 31 years. Uh, 31 years ago, uh, I lived on Central Avenue, about 2900 block, and uh, I would go back to work at night downtown at the, at the Davidson building, and I'd leave at 11 o'clock or midnight and I'd walk home. Uh, and that, you know, I'd do that three or four times a week, and I didn't have any con uh, concerns about safety at all. Um, I still live on Central Avenue. Uh, I still go into work at night. Uh, I don't think I would walk down to work at night and walk home at, at midnight. In fact, I've done it a couple of times, uh, and I made sure that I wore a hoodie and I stuck to, stuck to um, like uh, dark alleys so nobody could see me. Um, and that's just behavior. So you're the creepy one in the yeah, alley. Exactly. <laughs> so, so I'm not talking about you know how I guess I feel consciously about it, but my behavior has, has changed. Hmm. Um, for the first 15, 20 years that I lived here, I can't remember being a victim of a property crime. In the last five years, uh, my, I've had a car stolen. I've had a car broken into twice and rifled through. I've had things stolen out of the back of my pickup. I've had uh, <laughs> lawn equipment sto stolen out of my backyard. I've had uh, somebody try to get into my garage at night. I've had somebody try to come through my front door. Uh, and I've had, at least on two occasions, um, people sleeping in the front yard of my house uh, in the morning. And those are just the things I can, I can think about. I, I did get my car back, by the way, uh, thanks to the Great Falls Police Department. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I consider myself an average person that lives in Great Falls, and that's my experience. Um, so I don't know if that helps answer your question or gives you a different perspective or not, but. So I'll, I'll start with, I was born and raised in this community and it's been my home the entire time. My father was a Great Falls police officer for 35 years and I've been on the job for 25 of those. 
to say it has changed in this community, it has. What the police department has to deal with today is not what it was 50 years ago or even 15 years ago. The expectations of this community has been raised such a higher bar. They expect when they call 911 to receive a service, whether it be police, fire, med, you name it. That's the expectation our community has. City Manager Doyne kind of mentioned, there's a not a lot of users to our services, which is great. That, that is a success for us, right? We don't want to see you on your worst day. But that expectation is there that when you do have that bad day, that you expect someone to respond, whether it be a crime, whether it be a heart attack, whether it be your home on fire. And, you know, the city manager's done everything he can. The case has been put before the commission and everything's been done. We've cut services, we've cut what we respond to, we've done everything we can as department heads to still provide for the expectations of this community and be able to respond. There's nothing left to cut. It is gonna take a catastrophic event before this community might have to make a hard decision and that's why we're before you and that's why this mill levy is before you and the bond is to not have that catastrophic event that forces us all to make a tough decision. Tony, thank you. Yeah, we'll see if you someone else has any questions. And um, if you're thinking of an additional question, uh, again, step up to the mic. If there's two people to step up, someone can have the chair right next to the mic. But uh, Shannon, I'm going to ask you a question as well uh, with the Juvenile Detention Center. Um, and one of the things, again, I have the opportunity to do is take a look at uh, working with the Great Falls Public School District as well and some of the behaviors. And so every two years they do a high-risk behavior analysis and it's a survey that's sent out to students and they they answer it and they're asked to be honest and truthful but what we see is uh, slight ticks up among the high school students but what is um, appalling is the dramatic jumps among the middle schoolers I mean it's four or five and six percent jumps in this high-risk behavior and that covers a whole gamut of things but I guess my question for you is you mentioned 183 youth have been through the detention center in the last year. Um, how many or what percentages do you see as being repeat? Again, they, they do something, they come through the center, three months later they're back through or within the year. What percent roughly is kind of that repeat person coming through, roughly? Roughly right now our recidivism rate is right about 57%. 57? Yes. So again, that behavior, and if we don't take care of it, continues to lead to additional behavior. and. My role in retail for a couple years was a regional investigator for loss prevention. And that's what we saw. We saw criminal activity. And we could pattern them. And I could spend two hours, three hours, four hours talking about how we've caught different people committing crimes against retail stores across the country, but how we pattern them. And a lot of times we would send out a photo of that person, and then three weeks later they would be caught wearing the exact same outfit. And uh, sometimes hitting on the same day and time. So again, we're seeing that in our youth in our community to a much greater extent. So um, again, I would encourage you to grab that sheet in the back and take a look at those statistics as what's going on in our youth. And these aren't just youth that are cited. I mean, these are youth that are committing crimes in our community that puts them in the detention center. So I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that as well. Well, I think that the level of criminal behavior in itself has increased with um, pre-planning of crimes and uh, not really having a fear of law enforcement response um, and we saw a lot of that this year 
uh, around the holidays where we had kids that were going into like TJ Maxx and uh, Ross's and things like that. And, you know, it used to be you'd hear the beer, you know, grab and run and you'd run into the store and you'd grab the beer and you'd run out. These kids don't even run out anymore because they know nobody's going to chase them because the businesses are told to just let them go. So we have kids that are going in and grabbing huge amounts of clothing. And, you know, I happened to personally witness that this, at Christmas this year. I was in TJ Maxx and I kept hearing this beep, 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 beep. And I'm like, man, what is going on with that door up there? I mean, and as I was leaving, I'm standing in line and I see two people walk out of the door with one had a cart and one had his arms full. And I'm going, what in the world? And for a while, I ran the jail a couple of years ago. And I look, and one of them waves at me. <laughs> this lady goes by me, and she goes, I mean, it gives me like the heads up nod. And I'm going, what in the world? And I look at the lady behind the counter, and I'm like, they just walked out with a bunch of stuff. And she's like, we know. But we don't chase them, because we don't know if they have a weapon. We don't know what's going to happen to us. And the person behind me said, What's going to stop the rest of us from starting to do that? I work hard for my money, and I'm in here trying to buy Christmas presents, and those yahoos are rocking out with everything. What's going to stop this? And that really kind of resonated with me, because that's the exact mentality I'm seeing with the kids right now, is who's going to stop me? And they're carrying weapons, and kids are not the safest or the smartest. <laughs> uh, like you said, their brain isn't developed until they're 25. They don't know how to properly handle firearms. They don't know if a safety is on or not. And we've got lots of arms that are exchanging hands. You know, and people still keep their weapons in their vehicles and don't think that they're going to get stolen. And kids are breaking in, looking for weapons. And then these weapons are exchanging hands and exchanging hands. And we have the, the increase in shootings. I've got a youth in there right now that's still sitting in there from a shooting that happened around the Challenge Springs area. And it didn't happen just once. He shot at people twice. And he got it on GPS, and then he shot somebody else. So it's, it's not that, um, you know, it's doom and gloom right now, but the precursors are there that, as was mentioned, it's going to take a tragedy in order for people to understand Kids don't, if they don't have immediate consequences, they're going to continue to increase their behavior. They're going to get braver. They're going to try more things. And we see that. We have kids that have rap sheets that when you're looking at them, you know, they're 35, 40 crimes long. And they're 15 years old. That's the average age of a kid in the juvenile detention center is 15. Their behaviors are not going to change if they don't have consequences. And believe me, I'd love to say juvenile detention is a consequence. It's not. And it, that's what's sad, is there's not respect for authority. There's not those things that are like, geez, if I do this, this is what's going to happen. They're challenging the police. And you're seeing that with the, the resisting arrest and the obstructions and things like that. There's no fear there anymore. You know, they almost see it as, geez, you know, if I get taken out by cop, I'm going to be kind of a, a martyr for my group of kids that I'm with. And that's scary. That's really what's scary. And I, w I would love to see that change. And I would love to see kids not be carrying weapons. But it's made me change my behavior, too. I no longer go into stores. I do the order online and pick up in the parking lot <laughs> with my door locked 
until I see the little person at my door and then I get out and I put my my vehicle, you know, my, my groceries in my vehicle or my merchandise or whatever. But you, you do, when you see this on a daily basis, you mentally change your behavior. You mentally look around you when you're walking down the street or getting into your vehicle. You know, we teach kids, when you get in your vehicle, lock your door. Don't check your cell phone. Don't be sitting there. Lock your door. We shouldn't have to be doing that. We should be back to where we were, you know, in 60, 70 years ago, where you could walk down the street and you didn't have those fears. Any other questions from the audience? Yes, sir. I just have a comment. Uh, my name is Jim Whitaker, and I'm an ex-legislator. I think the marijuana bill was a real total mistake. I think they legalized that for what reasons? I was away from that. But uh, you're talking about vape shops open. How many's in the county? How many's in the city? Did they do that for money? But I think that's part of our problem. Yep, thank you. Any other questions from the audience that we have? So I guess a couple of closing comments that I have as well too is that um, the next forum's coming up. Greg mentioned it. Uh, the next one that the city is hosting, again, beverages and cookies. Um, that'll be on Monday, September 18th. Um, again, that'll be at the Civic Center. Uh, downtown and then crime stoppers will be doing one in October as well too and that'll be Tuesday October 10th and our theme on that one will be crime stoppers as uh, public safety levies good for the community and good for business because again we want to talk about the issues that are facing different levels of our uh, city and community and how it's affecting other things that sometimes are off our radars until we bring it to the attention of uh, our citizens as well too um, the chamber often is known for uh, what I'll talk about, uh, promoting our community, being a champion of our community, and we are. We're always a positive, talking about unicorns and rainbows. But sometimes we have to talk about the devil and the demons that are going on as well, too. And it's not fun, but I mean, we've got a red, red alert going on. Danger Will Robinson. And, and I hate to say we're in trouble. We've got a great city. We've got phenomenal folks that are leading our city, phenomenal uh, staffs that are helping maintain our public safety. but. Folks, there, there will be a cost one way or another, and so um, we need to think about that. So for these upcoming forums, invite your friends, invite your family, invite your neighbors to them so they can also learn the facts and, and learn about the situation and the challenges that our, our team our team is facing in our community as well, too. So um, I also want to end with this as well, too. Um, keep in mind there's, there's two levies. There's a public safety levy, and there's also the public safety bond levy as well too. So, and again, how to think about that is that the bond levy is for some facilities. Some of our facilities are in need of some upgrading. Uh, we need a new fire station. That will help with maybe 20% or half of the 41% that's outside of the standard service call. We actually need two in our community. So when you talk about future needs, um, that's what it is. So bond levies are for buildings and facilities. The operational levy is to help provide this team up here with the resources they need to increase their staffing, uh, increase some of their support staff as well too. And I, I think of our city attorney and our city judge as well too and the challenges they're facing. It just helps things move faster more quickly so we can again make sure there's consequences 
And uh, again, part of our forum tonight was to, um, again, provide education and information so then you can go out and advocate for this as well too. So any closing comments um, from our panel up here? I'm gonna turn it over to our city manager, Greg Doyne, for a final comment. He's like, great. <laughs> Just thank you again so much for showing up and uh, being engaged and being willing to listen to us up here by really bad analogies. Two things that uh, kind of came to mind in this discussion that I just wanted to leave you with. One was this, uh, the heavy discussion about our kids. And quite frankly, uh, when I'm thinking operationally about the levy uh, and the bond, that's not the first thing that kind of comes to mind, but it is certainly out there and I appreciate the conversation um, about that uh, tonight. And, um, and secondly, I just uh, hope that we can continue to get information to the public and, and just thank you for being here and uh, being willing to listen and then make an informed decision on this, which is what we hope that the citizens will do. So thank you very much. So thank you for coming tonight. The panel will be around. Yep, give them a round of applause. So they, they will be around for a little bit if you have some individual questions for them. Um, I think we do want to maybe 15, 20 minutes and then we'll want to probably exit uh, the building. We do want to thank the Alliance for Youth and they're allowing us to meet here at the Youth Resource Center for that as well too. So, But again, thanks for coming tonight and if you have any other questions, you can visit with one of our commissioners or the panel up here. Thank you.